get started with the show, we wanted to draw your attention to our crowdfunding page on Patreon. If you've been enjoying Always Take Notes, please do consider supporting us there. It helps us to keep the podcast going. If you support us on Patreon, you can get a great selection of rewards, including a shout out on the show and a selection of successful magazine pitches. Thanks to our latest donor, Madhu Mergia. Madhu is the FT's technology correspondent. She reports on major news, trends and innovations in technology across Europe and the rest of the world. Thanks very much for your support. If you pledge $10 a month, you get a free two-month trial to Otter worth $26 alongside the other rewards. Otter offers automated transcription and live note-taking for in-person and virtual meetings. I found it to be a huge help when organising interview material. You also get access to a series of mini-episodes from previous guests on the show in which they answer three revealing questions. The latest episode features Guy Stagg, and here's a snippet. And so I went onto Wikipedia and read up the biographies of writers I admired and thought to myself, oh, well, it'll probably take me two years or three years to write this book, and then I'll write another book, and then I'll write another book, and, and so on and so forth. I think it's it's a natural impulse because it gives you a sense of security. But sadly, no book is like any other book. Each one has its own individual demands and it will take its own amount of time to complete. And unfortunately, you you can't know. Hello, and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, we speak with the novelist Kate Moss. We spoke to Kate about the history and the future of the Women's Prize, which she founded, about her big break with her novel Labyrinth, and about her approach to researching and writing historical fiction. It's a great episode. We hope you enjoy it. Hello, Kate. Welcome to Always Take Notes. Um, Could we start by talking about the Women's Prize? Would you mind, I know you've talked about it many times before, but give us a sort of brief uh, origin story of it. The origin story of the Women's Prize. Yes, it's a great pleasure to be here. Um, The Women's Prize came about uh, because in 1991, there was a Booker Prize shortlist that had no women on it at all. And that's okay because the judges have the right to choose whichever books they most value and fulfil the um, the criteria of the prize they're judging. But the point was that nobody noticed that there were no women on it until the book list was put out. And a lot of us working in publishing, women and men, uh, in all parts of publishing and writing, journalism, just said, can you imagine if they'd put out an all-female list? All hell would have broken loose. They would have, it would have been seen as political. It would have been seen as, um, you know, deliberate. It would have been seen as snubbing male writers. Whereas, of course, it just kind of highlighted the idea that there is no such thing as a neutral voice. Um, but often, what is presented as literature with a capital L is white and male, and there are many brilliant white male novelists. So it's not about uh, leaving anybody out. But it was very much saying there's an awful lot of books that readers don't get to hear about, and we wanted to set up a prize that would honour, celebrate and amplify women's voices, writing in English from all over the world and our diverse range of voices. And, um, well, the rest is history, really. It's now, you know, one of the major prizes of the world. Uh, Thousands of novels by women have been put into the hands of men and women who love them. Uh, We have run literacy programmes, research programmes, and have just want always just saying, you know, let's always interrogate Who are the people that are getting published and who are the people who are not? What is considered valuable in writing and what is is not? And a lot of it goes back to the old fashioned ideas of what's studied in universities. Um, And when I was trying to explain this to my lovely dad, you know, 30 years ago um, about setting the prize up. And he listened, you know, he was a man of a certain age and he he died um, 10 years ago now um, in his late 80s. And he said, oh, I understand. So it's not about... um, you know shutting people out it's about getting a bigger table and pulling up more chairs and I thought yeah that's a lovely way of putting it. And what were the practicalities back in the 1990s I mean from having this decision that you wanted to do it how did you actually go about it in terms of getting funding getting it set up how could you just talk us through you know the the realization of it? I was a much younger woman then. Yes, exactly. It it took a lot of energy from a lot of people and a lot of determination. Um, but there's two there's two ways of dealing with things, isn't there, in life. It's you can either see something that you feel is not quite right and you can sit around and moan about it, or you can do something. You know, it's that I always think people divide into two, the builders and the wreckers. Um, so we just thought that this needed to be addressed, that women's writing needed to be honoured and put out there. So the first thing we had to do was to do our research. 
properly to find out actually what the statistics were. You know, there's always a great deal of um, folk history and anecdote, but what actually were the statistics? And they were these, um, that 60% of novels published in the UK at that period of time were authored by women, and 75% of novels uh, bought in the UK were bought by women, but fewer than 9% of books ever shortlisted for major literary prizes were by women. So there was genuinely an issue if you like, about the honouring and uh, respecting of women's writing. So we were, once we had our, the, our facts and figures, we could start to think about what we wanted to do. Uh, did we want to have a prize that was judged by only women or women and men? Should it be a prize for women's writing or, for, you know, everybody? So working out all of the things that we thought would best achieve, trying to say most of the books that are being published are being ignored and and left out it's always you know it's in my own writing the same it's always about hidden and unheard women's voices and getting them out there and we made a decision it would be international English language so that women from all sorts of cultures from all other parts of the world would be um, eligible so there was a proper diversity of voice not uh, in those days the more old-fashioned way of doing things tended to be British and Commonwealth and most of us felt that wasn't really appropriate um, anymore and then as you say the the hunt for money. Because in the end, we knew that it needed to be big. We knew that we wanted to say the prize money would be enough for a woman who won it to take a year off from her main job. If, you know, most, none of us become novelists because we think we're going to make a living out of it. Everybody starts with another job that they're doing and often keep going with another job. We know this, you know. Um, so we wanted it to be a proper sum of money. And we also wanted to a sponsor that would be about celebrating amazing writing by women. It wasn't, um, you know, a campaign, it wasn't a political campaign. It wasn't about highlighting uh, injustice and all of these things. It was about saying, let's just celebrate some great books that you, you're not hearing about. So we were very lucky in our first sponsor, Orange, because they were looking for a way to connect with a female uh, buying public. At that stage, mobile phones, it seems crazy now. But at that stage, mobile phones were absolutely seen as toys for boys. Um, nobody could possibly understand why anybody would want one. Why would you want people to be able to ring you up all the time? Um, and all the other phone companies were actively uh, trying to sell to women by intimidating women and uh, uh, playing on fear, if you like. So there was one ad, I won't say which company it was, which is, you know, you're on your own, your car's going to break down in a country road, there's no lights, there's going to be an axe murderer in the bush, you need a mobile phone. And Orange had made a really brilliant decision what, that they were going to appeal to women by going, women are great. Let's listen to women. Let's be celebratory. And it was very satisfying when we signed a deal with them and they were our sponsors for 16 years, which was incredible. The longest at that stage continuous art sponsorship in the UK um, until Orange was no more. <laughs> um, you know, that was when it came to an end. And they saw their... Um, the numbers of women uh, buying their phones, they completely wiped the floor with every mobile network. And so it was a lovely lesson that actually being positive, acting positively, trying to change things in a positive way and a, a happy way, if you like, rather than a complaining way, um, works for both arts organisation and sponsor. And what was the reaction from, from the public and from the literary world? I read that A.S. Byatt said, said she thought that the prize was sexist. Yes, she did. Uh, she has every right to think that. That's absolutely fine. Um, from the public, uh, complete, completely buying into it straight away. Um, you know, from our first shortlist onwards, um, every year, the numbers of books sold and appearing on the bestseller list has gone up and up and up. And our current uh, winner um, of last year, our 25th winner, Maggie O'Farrell, has been at the top of the hardback. Uh, list for a long time and is at the top of the paperback list now and is in the New York Times bestseller list. So the public were like, great, you're telling us about great books. Uh, the publishing world thought it was fantastic because everybody knew there was an issue in this area. It was a very old fashioned way. It belonged to, you know, the, the kind of mores of publishing, if you like, in the 50s, 60s and 70s, which was, you know, black tie dinners and gentlemen in their clubs. And lots of men and women were, were kind of changing that. But we did want to be a breath of fresh air. There were, of course, some people who didn't like the idea of it. There were many people who do, you know, just couldn't listen, you know, so wanted, you know, immediately said, well, this is very sexist and this is retrograde and this is really bad. And I'd say, but these are the figures. And so what would you suggest instead? And the, they wouldn't have an answer. So it's very, you know, it's fine. No, nothing is perfect, but 
you know, if there's a problem, if you've got a better solution, let, let's hear it, you know. Um, so I was always very up for engaging with those conversations. And we wrote into the rules that any woman, um, you know, should only be entered if she wanted to be. What's very interesting that there was an older generation of women, uh, and it was mostly older, who did feel that they had spent ages bashing the door down. So did feel the idea of going back into what they saw as a woman-only space was um, a negative step. It was a backward step. But we never saw it as woman-only any more than I see watching Tottenham lose as men-only. You know, we saw it as these are celebrating books by women for male and female readers. Most of those women, not all, but most of the women who felt that to start with over the years have said, oh, we, we've seen that this has changed things. We've seen that this makes a difference to book, women's books being reviewed in the same sort of way. And I think what every writer, every single person listening, it doesn't matter how you define whether you're a man or a woman, how, if you define differently what you look like, where you come from, your, your class, your ethnicity, your disability or um, any of your faith, your, you know, any of these things. What we all want as writers is for our work to be taken seriously. That's it. And sometimes, oddly, you need different sorts of measures to make sure that everybody's heard. And we're seeing a lot of that now long, long overdue um, in publishing people of colour and black people and brown people and the fact that actually there hasn't been enough diversity in those areas now. So we know that change comes when people say we need change. Um, but, you know, I still go back to because we did it positively and because we were engaging with the publishing industry and the library service and the literacy industry, um, we, we could get off to a flying start. And that's why the prices continue to grow year on year. Do you think it's helpful that it's just called the Women's Prize now rather than being associated with with a brand or with a company? It's a really good question, Simon, because actually it's a joyous thing for me as an older feminist <laughs> um, to see how much things have changed, particularly in the last five years, I would say. Uh, so when we were setting up the prize, um, the, the discussion about feminism, the discussion about gender, discussions about... Um, who, who are the gatekeepers about diversity of voices, Th this simply wasn't the period of history that we were in. And so actually being allied with a brand was helpful because if you like, what we wanted was to say, the Orange Prize shortlist is incredible books. Oh yeah, they are all books by women, yeah, but this is what you're, you're buying into, this, this, this brand. Now things have changed so that actually saying the Women's Prize for Fiction is really powerful uh, because uh, marketing to women and being part of a conversation about opportunities for everybody, whoever they are, is now a very live and current debate. So if you like, I would say that that's one of the biggest changes in the 26 now years of the Women's Prize for Fiction, is that there is a completely different dialogue in the world in general, which is kind of softly political rather than hard politics. And I think that's great. And I think that, that we are seeing lots of younger writers lots of writers um, who define differently, lots of writers of colour, lots of black writers saying, you guys, you know, we need to be more part of this conversation. And I, I use that analogy because th that's happening now and that's long overdue. Um, and I, the Women's Prize, I think, continues to, to say women's voices matter. And don't forget that whatever anybody has in terms of visibility, in terms of opportunity, can just as easily be lost. So keeping on saying that women's voices matter as much. And how did you um, feel about the sort of controversy that erupted this about this year's shortlist and, and also about the, um, the long listing of Detransition Baby? Um, could you tell us a little bit about sort of what happened there and, and how you felt within the prize about the reaction to it? We, um, the, the Women's Prize has always... Um, wanted to make sure as wide a range of uh, voices can be heard. We have a very straightforward policy, which is that we follow British law about what how a woman is defined. That's it. We are a charity. Uh, we have terms and conditions. And that's what we have always done. And so therefore, writers who are trans women have been eligible for the prize for as long as that area of law and that debate has been around. Um, it was interesting because it was the first time that a trans woman had been longlisted for the prize, but it was not the first time trans women had been entered. It was just one of those storms where I respect absolutely people's right to differ. 
I think, of the extremes, if you like, of every single debate, whatever it's about, <laughs> you know, the price of fish, anything. There are often very active voices and campaigning voices. And uh, for, for us with the Women's Prize, it was very straightforward. Uh, the novel was eligible. Trans women are eligible um, under the terms and conditions of our rules and regulations, have been for years. And therefore, the judges chose of the books that they were entered, the 16 novels by women that they most wanted on the list. And actually, there's no more controversy than that. It's absolutely true that some people found that very, very challenging. Um, I wish, of course, that if they were challenged by it, that they would be promoting the other 15 writers rather than attacking one. Because again, I think in these kind of debates, it's about you know, let's be let's be positive. So, if, you know, if you are very, very anxious about uh, trans women being on the list, I'm just interested that, you know, the reaction sh should be to s promote everybody else, you know, to, to sort of, you know, to be positive, to be positive about the books you like. Um, so it was it's very disappointing. Um, obviously, it's always disappointing uh, when um, uh, women are attacking other women. Um, of course it is. But I... I totally respect people's right to feel differently. It's just this is the rules of our prize in the same way that the Booker has its rules and the Pulitzer has its rules and, uh, you know, rules about, uh, uh, you know, people from different ethnicities, rules about people from different parts of the world. Every literary prize has its rules. And um, the, you know, the Women's Prize Trust, their job is to make sure that the rules are followed. And, and they were. So, um, and, you know, it was a fantastic long list, really fantastic long list. You've got a background as a publisher as, as well as a novelist yourself. Could you say a little bit about how for, for the book industry, the role that prizes plays? Because they, I mean, they're, they're originally conceived as a marketing tool, right? I mean, they, prizes sort of sell, sell books. I mean, how, how significant are they at that? And how does their role there compare to how it was in the past? Um, it, they are incredibly significant prizes now. Not all prizes, because there are many prizes. Um, but there are a great many books published. The publishing industry nowadays is what we would call front list led. And of course, I mean, everybody listening, I'm sure will know, but just in case, what that means is that it's very focused on the new releases and quite often the new young voices. And they are often, they are young. They're not always young when they're new, of course, but that, there's often that. So the, the, new, the new big thing. Um, whereas, of course, the bread and butter and the backbone of publishing is about what we call backlist. So, you know, my novel Labyrinth came out in 2005, but that's still on the shelf um, because people, we all do this. We go into a bookshop and we pick a book that we've maybe heard of, but we haven't read. We don't all read the books that come out. And there are, there are so many books published um, now. And because of this focus on the new the new great thing and the front list, it means that often, and this is why independent booksellers are so, so important, but if you go into most of the supermarkets in the chains, you will see the same uh, sus usual suspects, if you like. Now, I'm not in any way complaining because I benefit from that myself, um, but I think what prizes do is put works of quality, exquisite writing, beautiful ideas, um, they help put those in the public consciousness too. The novels that might not be in the two-for-one deal at the front of the shop, they might not be in every single bookshop, there might be just one copy, and it keep, and prizes keep works of quality on the shelf. So, as I've mentioned, our, our current um, winner, if you like, Maggie O'Farrell, she's a, a, an amazing and wonderful uh, writer and has written several extraordinary uh, novels. Um, because she won the Women's Prize, that book has be virtually been, not been out of the bestseller list. Not only because of that, because there were lots of other things, special uh, deals, uh, you know, it was Book of the Year at Waterstones and other prizes. Uh, of course, it's never just one thing. But prizes do keep work of quality on the shelves. And it means that the literature that people really value and love will be there for the next generation to find. Or even just all of us who are knackered after a year of pandemic and have read nothing but old you know golden age detective stories me i've read 300 in lockdown um you know it's it's that so uh, prizes yeah prizes put books that matter in front of the public and they keep them there i read um in another interview you gave uh where you said that um 
prize are important both to sort of acknowledge writers, but also to encourage people who don't see themselves as writers to to pick up a pen. Um, could you tell us a bit more about the Discoveries mentoring program that you've recently launched? Yes, thank you. We're we're doing um, Discoveries. We're doing it in association with NatWest and Curtis Brown. Uh, creative, you know, wonderful, one of the oldest literary agencies, and they they have a good um, policy of trying to mentor and support writers. Because one of the things that has become clear as the industry mo- tries to move to a more diverse base of authors, um, so, you know, if you like, they don't all look like me. I know where where nobody's seeing me, but, you know, I'm a short, blonde woman of nearly 60. You know, I'm, I look like a lot of book jackets, as it were. Um, so, as the industry is trying to diversify and um, encourage more people in, it is absolutely clear that it has to do more to reach out to people who don't think that being a writer is for them. Because a great imagination, a desire to tell a story, that just is in somebody. And it might be discovered at school, it might be, you know, uh, you go and do a course at the library, but many people don't they just don't see themselves reflected on the book jacket. Um, so they don't think that they're the sort of person who should write a book. But truthfully, they're exactly the sort of person that should be writing a book. You know, we, we want to hear more stories because why does it matter? It matters. Diversity of writing and publishing matters because, and that includes all of us, um, because the more stories we hear, the more we understand. Um, novels are about empathy. They are about standing in other people's shoes. Uh, and not and non-fiction writing uh, and biography and history as well. They are about both holding a mirror up to ourselves, but also listening to people with experiences widely different because then we can be kinder and know more. And I'm still, still, despite everything, an optimist that, the you know, you try to leave the world better than when you came into it, um, which is why I, I always talk about trying to make change positively rather than negatively. And... So therefore, with uh, Discoveries, we decided that we needed to, we've always had a new writing programme. We've always been trying to talk to the gener- next generation of, of writers who could be 80 or 18. But with Discoveries, with Curtis Brown and Nat West, uh, we've, it was a much, much bigger process. So we actively went out um, throughout all areas of the UK and Republic of Ireland, um, going, you know, trying to reach out into libraries to particular parts of the country. Obviously, we had to pivot in the new word quite a lot of this online because we couldn't do some of the things that we've been intending to do in the pandemic to but actively try to find new people to say why don't you have a go and rather than just about being the writing that we read it was about uh, reading thousands of entries we had thousands of entries more than 2,000 entries and then whittling it down to a short list of 16 and then we will go down to a short list of six and one so we're mirroring uh, the main prize but everybody who is longlisted will receive mentoring they will be receiving advice and this is the thing that's missing is the idea that you can see when you read some and some of the stories you see this someone who says I've never tried to write a story before and absolutely needs support in trying to structure trying to write description whatever it is but at the heart of it you think wow wouldn't that be a great novel to read and so we're that you know that is one of the biggest things about discoveries that 16 people will be receiving mentoring and guidance and workshops and support and yeah wouldn't it be great if that would that would be 16 new writers and then those 16 of course will inspire another 16 and before you know it you've got a whole range of new voices coming into the industry and that would be we would really feel that discoveries had had done its job Thanks for telling us so um, much about the, the prizes. We'd like to roll back a bit now to your, your own career. Um, and to, to go back to the beginning, is it right that you, you thought about being a musician, but then pivoted from that to, to studying English? Could you tell us a bit about that? And then also about how you found the, the kind of academic study of English when you were at university compared to subsequently writing fiction? Sure. Well, when I was um, at school, you know, the thing I did all the time was, um, was music. You know, I played the fiddle and I played the piano. And so all my evenings were taken up, you know, practicing, being in the orchestra, doing those kind of things. And I did think, you know, for a long time, even though I loved theatre and I, you know, did all of the, you know, all of those things to went to the theatre. I'm lucky enough to live in Chichester in West Sussex and the local theatre is an internationally renowned, amazing theatre. Um, and I was, you know, passionate reader. 
Um, but I, I thought that, yeah, well, I'll apply to music college, you know, that that was going to be my trajectory. And then really, and very much supported by my amazing parents, really, um, I suddenly realized I just wasn't good enough. I mean, I could have probably got in, but actually what I was saying with that is, when you're going to be, you know, the best you would achieve would be being in a relative, you know, second violin in a relatively good orchestra. And of course, that would have been a huge achievement. But I it, I just was very lucky that I suddenly thought, is that what you want? And realised it wasn't, that it was actually, I love doing it. I love playing in the orchestra. But actually, what was my passion? It was reading, really. So then I did um, study English at university. And I had done English at A-level. And I was already learning that you you were a completely different sort of reader when you were reading a book to study it from the person you are when you're just reading it. Um, when you're, I don't know if, if people listening know the amazing Terry Pratchett novel, The Thief of Time, where the little grey men, I think they are, uh, take apart a priceless masterpiece painting in order to work out how it works. And of course, they can't put it back together. They've destroyed it. And I think sometimes in the study of literature, um, it's it's almost counterintuitive to what it means to be a reader. So you are looking for patterns that possibly were not in the author's mind. I didn't understand this at the time. I, there was just an instinct I had of this. But of course, later when I became a novelist and I would go and give talks, and I'm a visiting professor at the University of Chichester in creative writing and contemporary fiction, and students ask me about my work, and I get a brilliant critique of what they think I was doing. And then you have to break their hearts and go, do you know what? I only did that because I realized that that guy had already killed. And so I needed a new person because otherwise there was going to be nobody to have a fight with. And you know, the whole critique then falls to pieces. So that was, you know, I loved studying English because it gave me the liberty to really read everything from the beginning to the, you know, not the modern day. And my English degree didn't go very modern, um, but in the way that I would never have ever read Beowulf, I probably would never have read, you know, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles, all of these things. And I'm really glad I did, uh, because I feel very strongly that all of us walk in the footsteps of giants. Uh, for me, obviously, you wouldn't be surprised to know the, the Victorian women of the, uh, you know, the, the, the burgeoning of novels, um, the Mary Shelley's and the Emily Dickinson's, um, Emily Bronte's, well, Emily Dickinson's, well, obviously a bit later as poet. Um, but I think it's really helpful um, you can't be a good writer if you're not a good reader. It's as simple as that. You, you know, read as much as you can and as widely as you can, because sometimes the things you don't like and don't speak to you, uh, you learn more about who you are as a writer than um, the ones that you love. Because apart from anything else, you know, when I read a novel by somebody that I think is extraordinary, uh, let's think, you know, Ali Smith or Kate Atkinson or something, you know, it's, it's quite easy to just be despairing. Because you think, well, they're so good. Hilary Mantel, you think, oh, gosh, she's so good. But of course, that's, that's, you can only be yourself as a writer and you can only be yourself as a reader. So, you know, I, I loved my English degree and my claim to fame is that I read the entire works of George Eliot in a week. That's not a bad effort. <laughs> not a bad effort. How much I, you know, whether she deserved better, I suspect she did. But <laughs> I think she'd probably be quite, uh, quite impressed. <laughs> um, <laughs> And then once you left university, did you go straight into working in publishing? I did, but not, not intentionally. Um, I've always been, and I say this to writers um, whenever I'm giving a talk to new writers or being part of a workshop or any of those kind of things, is um, the, the biggest gift you can give yourself as a writer whenever you start doing it and whenever you realise you want to do it, and whether it's journalism or poetry or playwriting or biography, life writing, whatever it is, is to be really flexible and open to everything. So, you know, it's like a young actor saying the only thing that she wants to play is Desdemona. Well, Desdemona might come along five years into your career, but what about the four years beforehand? Just take every opportunity. And I feel the same about, you know, my, my career, if you like, is that I was, you know, I'm of a, a generation where regardless of whether you're going to university or not, girls were sent to do secretarial courses. And I didn't have a gap year traveling or doing that. I had a, a gap year earning money to go to university and doing a secretarial course and working as a temp. Because in those days, nobody typed except for the secretaries. 
And so every it was the entry job for every, every, anybody. So when I left university, um, I'd done a lot of theatre at university. Um, I hadn't, I didn't think of myself as being a writer or somebody who wanted to write at all. I didn't write at university. Um, I and I hadn't got an acting, uh, any acting talent at all. Um, but I loved the theatre and realised that the areas I was good at was basically about raising money. And I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to be a producer. So I just started to temp as a secretary. And very early on, after leaving university, I was sent to a publishing company. And I temped there for a couple of weeks. It was Hodder and Stoughton in Bedford Square. Um, very old school, um, beautiful old uh, Georgian white building in that area, part of London. And after two weeks, there were somebody left and they said, because it was all much more casual in those days, do you, do you want a job? And I said, okay, because I didn't know what else I was going to do and I needed to pay the rent. And I loved it. I loved working in publishing, actually. Um, I loved being about, around books. I loved uh, the people that I met. I loved the collaboration of it. And it was a brilliant grounding for becoming a writer uh, because I really appreciate how hard publishers work. You know, I, I know how much they care about their authors and I know that, you know, nothing is quite as devastating as if your book doesn't do well. But I also know every editor, every agent that I've ever met is devastated if a book they love doesn't do well. So it was realising that there was this was a professional working business environment, but it had really warm values. It had really collaborative values. And and I, I really enjoyed my time. from our sponsor, Vitsu, Marta's story. If only each shelf could talk, reflected Marta, a Vitsu customer since 2004. Her shelving system began modestly and has grown over the years. It traveled with her from London to Valencia and now Amsterdam. This is the fifth time Marta has bought from Vitsu. Every time she speaks with her personal Vitsu planner, Robin, who reorganized her bookshelves to fit her Spanish walls and her Dutch hoose. He even sent her extra packaging to protect her shelves with each move. You might say that their relationship has become a friendship over the years. Marta knows she is valued and trusts the advice Robin gives. If your shelves could talk, what would they say? Vitsu's 606 Universal Shelving System is a modular, adaptable kit of parts. It can form the perfect home for your books and even the desk from which to write one. Visit vitsu.com, V-I-T-S-O-E.com or request a free brochure via email at vitsu.com by quoting ATN 606. Vitsu, makers of long living furniture by Dieter Rams. Could we talk about your early book projects, right? So you, you wrote a book on, on motherhood and then a book on the... Pregnancy. The Royal, uh, yeah, yeah. On, on pregnancy, sorry. And then a book on, on the that Royal Opera House. That bit comes first. Obviously. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's precisely. <laughs> could you? Could you, How how did these projects develop, and then how did you move from there to writing fiction, and how was that running in parallel to your your work in publishing? Well, I um was offered a really big job in publishing when I was pregnant with my second child, and that was exactly the same time that the Women's Prize. We, we had our first meeting about could we do this? Could we set up a a wonderful new prize? And I realised that I had to ask myself the question in the same way that I'd said, be open and just take things as they come. But I've been doing that for seven years now. And so the time had come, much like me deciding not to go to music college, to say, OK, Kate, you need to ask yourself, is your ambition for your working life to be the CEO of a publishing company? Because this is the moment you're choosing this. If you take this job, you're saying that that is an ambition. That's the career I want and that's what I'm going to be going for. And I took a long, hard look and I thought, yeah, but you know, it isn't actually. So I just took a deep breath and said, no, I won't, I won't take that job. And I left publishing. I mean, it was, I can't believe I was that irresponsible now. You know, we, we had one child, my husband was training to be a teacher. We had no means of support outside of that. But I just knew I had to be brave enough. You know, there's a wonderful Julia Margaret Cameron um, saying, which I'm sure many of your listeners will know, leap and the net will find you. And I just thought, well, it's now or never. I'm, I'm, you know. And I was having lunch with an agent friend of mine, a man called Mark Lucas at the, what's now the Soho Agency. And he and I uh, always got on very well. I'd never bought a book from him, but we always travelled hopefully. 
And I was having lunch with him and I said, do you know, um, when I was pregnant with my, my daughter, the book I really wanted to read when I was pregnant wasn't around, which was about, you know, the feelings. What do you feel as a feminist uh, being pregnant, that entering that kind of weird world, that strange, um, you know, people want to touch you all the time and you're you know not reduced at all because obviously I wanted to my my husband and I wanted to have a child but it was just it was I, I was not struggling with it emotionally but I was certainly questioning a lot of things about what it meant to be pregnant emotionally and I didn't have an easy pregnancy and all of these things and I said and now I'm pregnant again the book still doesn't exist and uh Mark said well why don't you stop moaning and write it and I said, you know, casually, okay, I will. And um, and I went home and didn't really think any more of it. And then he rang up a couple of days later and said, I've got a book deal for you. I went, what? <laughs> um, and Mark's memory of this is slightly different to mine. He claims he took a lot longer about it. I, you know, turned him into a magician. Uh, but the truth is that he did propel me into writing. And I thought, yeah, that's absolutely right. Why am I not writing about what I'm feeling? And why am I not talking to other women? And I'm, I have the time to do this. So I wrote that. It was published by Virago. It's still in print. Um, I kind of handed over the rights to it in that it's updated every year by a midwife and medical. You know, the, the medicine has changed hugely in the 30 years since since then. But it's a wonderful thing that that book's still in print and it still talks about women's you know emotional experiences and range of women. And out of that, um, again, my agent said there's a big BBC series on the Royal Opera House and they've decided that rather than someone within production writing it they need somebody who knows about music so the irony was that the the career that I did not follow suddenly years later came into its own because they needed somebody who could who understood the music um, and could talk to the musicians and so I did that um, and loved writing it that kind of life writing I think of it and because of that a, a fiction editor said have you ever thought of writing novels? Because although these books are non-fiction, actually what you do is tell the stories of people. And because I'm always up for a challenge, I said, okay. And I wrote two novels and they are very poor. I'm really proud of them because I've finished them and they're there, but they are poor because uh, they're books that I wrote from the outside in rather than the inside out. And what I mean by that is I was always sitting on my own shoulder, editing, kind of sucking my teeth, going, oh, that's not very good. Um, I thought I'd write quite literary fiction or crime because those are two areas that I particularly love reading. But it was a big lesson that the person you are as a reader is not necessarily the person you are as a writer. And it took me a long time to find my voice in fiction. But I did um, with my 2005 novel Labyrinth. Uh, so that... You know, I've been very lucky because I was given opportunities to try things out. And finally, at the age of 45, I was an overnight success. <laughs> I've seen I've seen you use that line and it's uh, it's a very good one. Um, how has your research and your sort of process changed then since those first two novels? How do you now go about um, like putting the bones of your book together? I read that you sort of assemble the, the stage first and then you find the actors to put on it. Yeah, that's it, it is really how it works for me. I know um, the first two novels were contemporary. Um, and that wasn't my voice, you know, there wasn't really any research and it was just that I, I, I realized that there are many people who have brilliant things to say about our current world. And I really admire them. A lot of them are crime writers, I would say also, you know, state of the nation novels, you get a real snapshot of where people feel and things when you, when you read crime, I think. Um, but what I discovered was that my, you know, it goes all the way back to Emily Bronte, that my biggest inspiration is landscape and land and history and the combination of those two things creates the story for me and so I write imagined characters against the backdrop of real history and therefore my research is about completely digging under the skin of the history that we know particularly because I am telling unheard and underheard women's stories I'm putting women centre stage of history women have been uh, quite systematically written out of history books uh, because so much of history has been written about a tiny percentage of society. Uh, so a lot of ordinary women like me never appear. Uh, you know, it's it's only you know, the only women that appear, the queens and, you know, the mistresses of generals and all of these sorts of things because of the nature, the discipline of history and who got to write it. Uh, so with me, it's about doing all of that research. It's a long process doing the research and then 
exactly as, as the phrase I've used before that you've in your research found, so thank you, is that it does feel like building a stage set. So everything is ready. And I know that the characters, the actors are standing in the wings. And then it's just about kind of starting to write the sort of story and letting the characters come and present themselves. So with my Burning Chamber series, I knew it was going to tell be a series of four books that was going to tell a 300 year feud, a Romeo and Juliet story between a Catholic and a Protestant family. I knew it was going to start on the eve of the wars of religion in 1562 in France and would finish in Franschhoek in South Africa in 1862. I knew it would be about a missing will, a legacy. It would be about revenge. It would be about what it means to be a refugee. I knew it would be about the faith and the consequences of faith and war and the consequences. You know, so I knew all of these things. And I knew my lead character was going to be a young woman um, who of who was going to be caught up in this. I didn't know whether she was going to be the Catholic or the, I didn't know any more than that my lead character would be a young woman. But as I started to write, she went from being a young woman living in Carcassonne in 1562 to being Minou Joubert, the daughter of the bookseller who looks like this and who has that backstory. And I am aware, you know, people listening will think, well, that sounds crazy. You just sit down and start writing, see who turns up. But I think this goes back to my um, history in publishing, that I have internalised so many of the skills needed to structure a novel because I have done that for other people. And also that my inspiration comes from the real history. So by the time I sit down, I have a really strong sense of the world and a really strong sense of the sort of story that I want to tell. And the characters, I'm just, I'm just they are the last bit of it. Um, whereas, of course, many people will start with character. It's interesting because our perennial question for novelists is whether you are a plotter or a plunger in terms of whether you have things worked out beforehand. It seems that you're you're kind of somewhere between the two and that you do this this basis of research and so forth, but it, the actual process, once that is done, is quite organic. Would that be accurate? Yeah, that's exactly right. I used this analogy um, the other day. I was interviewing um, the very wonderful Kazuo Ishiguro for, for World Book Night, and... It, and I used this analogy and then he told me off and he said he'd never read Pilgrim's Progress. And um, so he, he couldn't, you know, um, join in with this. But um, for me, I, I, I think of it, I am a mixture of a plunger and a plotter, exactly. Because if you know Pilgrim's Progress, forgive me if nobody does, but I, it's, it's one of the great pieces of English literature, is that Christian leaves and he knows, you know, on his pilgrimage, his journey, that he is going to the celestial city. But he doesn't know what's going to happen on the way. And that's what it's like for me, that I have a sense of the novel kind of slightly shimmering out of my reach. I absolutely know the period of history that it's going to um, cover, but I don't quite know what's going to happen. So when I was writing the second in my series, The City of Tears, which came out in January, I knew that my family would be in Paris in August 1572 for the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre because it's the most important part of history um, of, of the Reformation in France, if you like. You know, that that was the turning point uh, when the Huguenot leadership was ambushed and wiped out. Um, you know, many, many thousands of people died in the space of the night of the 24th of August, um, the eve of St. Bartholomew's Day. And um, so I knew my family had to be there. But I had confidence that if I just wrote their decision to go, I would know who was going to go. The story would present itself, if you like. That's how it feels. The story would present itself. So I think it's, you know, I'm very conscious that it's everybody does it differently and everybody has to uh, find what works for them and then try and be in a position where they can work to the best of their ability. When I've got my first draft, I sit back and I think, oh, so that's that's what this novel is about. And with The City of Tears, I didn't expect it, but it was essentially a Sophie's Choice novel. You know, you're in the middle, you know, I'm not going to write the history of the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre because I'm not a historian, it's been done a million times. What my readers want to know is what's going to happen to my people? What's going to be the small personal drama against the backdrop of the real history? And it was only when I was writing the book, I realised, oh, one of their children's missing. So do you stay or do you go? And that really took me by surprise. Um, so the second and third drafts of my novels are about making the book work, 
you know, the first draft is all emotion. Let's just get it all out there and see what see what you're working with. The second one is about structure. This doesn't work. This is, you know, this story is not very interesting. This character isn't delivering enough. They have to go. And then the third draft, because I do still always need three drafts, is, okay, that's, now let's write this novel as it should have been written. So, you know, it's a very long, it sounds a long process, but I do it in a very intense way. The research is the biggest part of my writing. Um, the writing is the shortest part and the editing is the middle. <laughs> So the research is always before you start writing, you always um, amass all the information so that you can sort of structure it along those historical sort of points. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Because I particularly when you write, I write historical adventure is how I define it rather than historical fiction. And consequently, an enormous amount about what makes it work is about momentum and jeopardy and adrenaline on the page, which means that if I'm writing a chase scene where my one of my lead characters, Piet, who is married to Minu, for example, is running away from the soldiers. Everything about making that scene work for the reader on the page is about oh, the breathlessness and the, uh, the charging forward and the, is he going to escape or not? If I have to stop to check what shoes he's got on or whether he would have a cape or how long his sword is, then everything about the excitement of writing you, it just it's like dust in your hands so for me I need to know that world backwards before I can put people in it because when I of course will go back and double 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 check things but when I'm actually writing that first draft I just need to be a storyteller nothing else everything you know I just need to know so it, you know it's little things like why does it matter that I know what my lead character is wearing what Mina is wearing well it matters because if she has to climb out of a window can she actually do that you know, we know the 16th century, we, we've seen all the pictures of Henry VIII and his wives and Elizabeth is coming and all of these sorts of things. But of course, that was court dress. That wasn't what ordinary people in Carcassonne were wearing every day. But they were wearing quite hefty things. They Nobody had heels on their shoes and very few people had buckles. So it's everything about how I write that scene depends on me knowing those details. So it's not research for research's sake. It's research in order to fuel the story to make it the best it could possibly be. Could you tell us a bit about Labyrinth and the experience of it being this this huge hit? And that when we've had lots of writers on who've had enormously successful books, and it's fascinating in that they often find it very difficult to say what concatenation of circumstances led to to a book kind of breaking out. And just connected to that, the other this we have a consistent rule of the podcast that we always ask about money and how it interfaces with people's writing lives. So how did how did Labyrinth become this smash? And then how did that be and be as candid or as guarded as you wish, but in terms of you know how the finances worked for you and your writing, how did it change at that stage? Yeah, well I'll I'll start with Labyrinth. Um it was it was a book that had been bought at auction, so there was a certain amount of interest about it. Um, and then I spent the next few years writing it. So, you know, spent longer than I should have done writing it because I had a job. You know, th 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 this is the thing. Um, and I would say that it was not an auspicious publishing um, in a way because Labyrinth published on the 7th of July, um, 2005 which is, as many of your uh, slightly older uh, audience will know, the day the bombs went off in London. So I was going up um, to London for a book that I had been thinking about for 10 years and today was coming out. And I got off, and this is, again, the day before everybody had mobile phones and you got alerts and everybody knew everything straight away. And I got off the train and I started to walk through London and I thought, this is really weird. There's so many people out about. I mean, it felt oddly crowded. And then I arrived at my publishers and my publisher said, how the hell are you here? And I was like, what do you mean? And they said, you haven't heard four bombs have gone off in London. There's lots of people missing, lots of people dead. And it was, of course, the, the worst thing for London and for all those, those families. So, you know, book publication is completely irrelevant. I only say this because what is so interesting is what happened to the book. So there was lots of advertising on the underground. Obviously, that was all shut. So basically, nothing was going to happen. Um, and rightly so, because, you know, we needed to think about the stuff that matters. But booksellers were hand-selling it. And what, for anybody who doesn't know, that means is, you know, if somebody goes into a bookshop and says, can you recommend a book? The bookseller says, what about this one? So at the end of the first week on sale, 
against all the odds and expectations, it went in to number 10 in the hardback chart. And that was beyond my expectation. And none of us could quite believe it. And I honestly felt that was going to be the biggest moment of my life, actually. And my lovely husband actually laminated the Sunday Times with me at number 10 because we thought that would be the thing that would go on the wall. And it, it felt amazing. And then just this weird thing happened. It Rather than normally what happens is all the sales are in the, at the beginning and so you go in at a certain point in a chart and then you slip down the chart, you know, week, up, week after week, unless you're Richard Osman, obviously, and then you're at the top of the chart for all of time. And that's an amazing and wonderful thing. Um, but for me, what happened was it was at number 10 and then it was at number nine and then it just w worked its way up to the top of the chart. But even so, that was, you know, th that felt like the most extraordinary thing. And I knew that people that I had never met must be reading it. And it was absolutely wonderful. And we went to Carcassonne for the summer and I, you know, and people would send me pictures of the copy they'd bought. And it felt like this unbelievable moment. Why do I think it happened? I think it was, and this is not in any way false modesty. Obviously, I'm really proud of the book. Um, but as you say, Simon, um, it's very hard to put your finger on why one book suddenly soars. Um, it isn't because it's the best book. It, there's, there's always some alchemy that makes that happen. But I actually think genuinely I benefited from another author. And that author was Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code. And um, that novel had it that was a very transformational moment it was i mean a great a great uh quest novel um and millions of people had read it and they were looking for novels that they felt would connect in the same sort of way and then i had a review in the newspaper and this is uh, this is not my view of dan brown's book I, I hasten to add but i had a review in the newspaper saying this is the Dan Brown for people with A-levels, <laughs> um, which, which is awful, of course. Um, but my publisher smashed, slapped that all over the universe, of course. Um, and the algorithms do their job. And so I genuinely think that part of Labyrinth's success can be put down to coming after Dan Brown. And one of the most interesting things about what Dan Brown's book did was so many men were talking about the fact they hadn't read a novel for years and they were reading him. And that, that therefore, my books are for anyone who likes my sorts of books. If you like an adventure story, it's for you. I don't write, um, you know, for, I write women's stories, uh, but I write for male and female readers who like that, that, that kind of thing. So there was a whole new load of, of rel you know, relatively new readers who were looking for more to read. And so I, I think I benefited enormously from that. And then the final thing that made it, you know, the, the, the book that topped the overall chart for 2006 and made it has made it sell over 8 million copies now and all of these things, was being picked for Richard and Judy book club in the days when it was on the television. And um, it's absolutely terrifying in, when you're on that because you're not there. They make a film about you, which is lovely, but then they have... You don't know what Richard or Judy are going to say about the book and you don't know what their guests are going to say about the book. They might quite like it. They might not like it very much. And so I was sitting at home with my children in Balkan and Regis, which is where we lived at the time, um, five in the afternoon with a huge glass of wine shaking, you know, all of us sitting holding hands because we and my mum. Um, you know, I live, you know, we live in a small place. Everybody lives close by, all very close. My mum had told absolutely everybody that I was going to be on the television. And I was just thinking, oh, my God, if it's a terrible review, it'd be awful. And there was even in, you know, my mum's village, um, she, the butcher of all people, a vegetarian, had put up a sign that said, Barbara and Richard's daughter on the television tomorrow. So, the you know, if it was going to be a catastrophe, we were going, to, we were going down in flames. Um, fortunately, um, they loved it. The day after it was on Richard and Judy, it sold 65,000 copies. And it was top of the charts for seven months. And most of us will never have that experience. It was not at all what I had ever expected to happen to me. I was incredibly lucky to have those things that happened that just meant that it was that book that time. And I never stopped being grateful for that because it transformed our lives. You know, we went from 
being, you know, a writer and a teacher and, um, you know, completely normal, you know, needing to do lots of extra work and lots of journalism and lots of these. And I had a full time job and uh, my husband worked part time because he was more, um, you know, did, it was it was a teacher and all, all of these things. But we were just completely at that sort of place and, and fine. Um, but what it meant was that I could give up doing any other job. I could be a full time writer. And for many people listening, you know, that is the dream for all of us, that you can actually write in the day. You're not writing around your other job and your other responsibilities. And that's not what you expect to happen at 45, for your life to change so much. So I still, whenever I see Richard or Judy, I still say thank you, because it really did change our lives. As we're coming towards the end of our time, Kate, I wondered if we could talk about your um, forthcoming book, about um, your experiences of being a carer, um, and also how you've fit writing around those um, responsibilities in, in sort of recent years. Yes. Well, my, yes, it's, um, the book is called An Ec Extra Pair of Hands, and it's part of the Welcome Collection from the Welcome Trust, um, which, of course, is the UK's leading um, organisation about health and social care. And they approached me to ask me to write this because they knew that I lived, we lived in a multi-generational household and knew that for 12 years I had been, and my husband, uh, absolutely, he's been on the whole of this journey too, um, had been, you know, a carer. So supporting my heroic mum, looking after my father, who had Parkinson's, until his death, almost 10 years to the day that we're talking, actually. Um, and then being, you know, holding a watching brief for Mama, and she died very unexpectedly at Christmas in 2014, which was really, really devastating. And then now I am a full-time carer for my wonderful mother-in-law, Granny Rosie, and we are good pals and um, and we all live together in a house. Um, and I, I'm not someone who really particularly wants to write personal stuff. I love reading life writing. I really admire people who feel that they're the innermost parts of themselves they can share for the benefit of others. Um, you know, writers like Matt Haig or Adam Kay or um, Bryony Gordon, you know, there are many that we could we could talk about. Rachel Clark, beautiful book, Dear Life. Um, I never imagined myself doing that. But care is the biggest social issue. It's so, so, so important. It's, uh, you know, um, we are in a moment of crisis. Uh, there was a commission set up, the Dilnet Report, to look into care in 2010, and still every sing not a single recommendation has yet been put into practice. Unpaid carers uh, save the UK economy 132 billion a year, and there are 8.8 .8 million of us who are unpaid carers. And we need to be looking after our carers better. We need to be having much more important conversations about dignity and ageing well. And we need to change the language around ageing, which has always seen somehow a problem that people are live, living longer, rather than what an achievement of the NHS, that people are not all dying in their 40s from totally treatable things. And I feel very strongly about this, obviously, <laughs> my experience, but also because I believe that what matters about a person is what they're like, and what they do, and what they say, not how old they are. And I think that, you know, we've seen some really shocking um, evidence of that, the idea that older people matter less, everybody matters for their contribution and who they are. And so I decided I would accept the invitation to write the book because the only way that we're going to change things on care, the only way that we're going to start to uh, structure a society where people are rewarded and respected for what they have contributed, um, is that all of us who are in this position and there will be many people listening to this who are in the same position as me. There will be many who are in a much, much more challenging position than me. They might be caring on their own. They might be caring for um, a younger generation and an older generation at the same time. They might have very few resources because they've had to give up their job in order to care for somebody with a long life-limiting illness. Um, I have been very, very lucky. I The book is um, a, a tribute to my mother and my father and Granny Rosie, as everybody calls her. Um, I loved my parents very dearly and I love Granny Rosie very dearly and I am very privileged to be in a position to be able to repay a lifetime of love uh, with care now. The one, the other thing where I am deeply privileged is I am a writer and because of Labyrinth changing our lives um, I am a full-time writer which means I can still do my job whilst being a carer. Many, many people have to choose 
or they need to take time off and they find their job is gone, particularly women. Uh, the majority of carers are women. Uh, 59%, um, a woman at the age of 59 has a 50-50 chance of being a carer. And there are many, many child carers in this country. And this is not what the society we should be building. Everybody should be part of caring for people who need it. And I'm still an idealist about these things. I still think that we can make the world better. Um, so I decided I would write the book and um, would share my experiences uh, that will hopefully echo with other people's. But very much I'm only talking from my own point of view because I'm conscious that many people have far, I don't, have huge challenges that I, I don't. One of the biggest of those is that I, my father had Parkinson's, which is a very ugly um, illness and difficult. Uh, my ma was here today, gone the next, and Granny Rosie has, you know, is in a wheelchair. But it's a completely different kettle of fish when you're caring for someone with Alzheimer's or dementia um, who doesn't know who you are, um, who can't reciprocate, because everything about my caring experience has been about a partnership. Uh, they are still them and you are still you. And everything that you can do, you know, I sit here where I'm talking to you now is where I sit and write my novels and where I write my nonfiction. And I'm, uh, uh, you know, five steps away from where Granny Rosie is at this very moment. I don't know when this podcast will go out, uh, but Granny Rosie, I can absolutely tell you uh, the sun is over the yard arm and will be waiting for me to finish this to make her a gin and tonic. And long may that last. And she's 90 and she is incredible. Um, so I've been caring for people who I admire and respect and love. And many people are caring for people that they don't have much connection with or they don't even like who didn't care for them very well. So I, I feel very strongly that we need to start caring about the carers. It's the lowest of the statutory benefits, £1.90 an hour. So if you've had to give up your job, uh, you know, so you need to speak up. You know, I need to speak up and there will be lots of people listening who not keep their caring, but we are everywhere. We are hidden in plain sight, carers. Um, and we need to change that as well. We need to say without without all of us caring, then the whole health system falls to pieces, actually. So, you know, this is part the Carers Week uh, is uh, the first first full week of June. And this year, their theme is making caring visible. So um, the book is publishing then. And I, I'm just one tiny voice in a much bigger conversation, but I'm, I'm glad to have been able to contribute a bit. Kate, we should uh, draw a close to this because we're coming up against our time limit. But thank you for being a, a fascinating guest and covering so much ground from the prizes to your, your own career and wishing you all the best with everything going forward. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. That was the Always Take Notes interview with Kate Moss. If you'd like to follow her on Twitter, you can do so at, at Kate Moss, that's Moss with an E. And she also has a website, which is katemoss.co.uk. Hello, it's us again. Rachel, what was your takeaway from the interview with Kate? In terms of uh, how authors approach research, I really enjoyed the fact that Kate likes to walk the places of where she's setting her books, especially given the historical element, trying to put herself literally in the shoes of her characters. How about you? I thought it was really interesting her approach to writing historical fiction of uh, mm -hmm. researching the, the period of time deeply, but creating fictional characters on top of that landscape, which is, I suppose, the opposite to the uh, Hilary Mantel approach where you try and get inside the head of a real historical figure. I think if I were having a go at it, heaven forbid, I'd probably lean towards Kate's approach, I think, because it gives you more freedom. I also thought it was interesting that you know, she had worked in publishing herself and people who've walked that divide from publisher to author. It's very interesting. Mm. And great to hear the strides that the Women's Prize has made as well since its inception. Yeah, yeah. She clearly has a whole sort of separate area of expertise as a sort of setter-upper of things and things as well. Rachel, what have you been up to? I've been very busy recently. I've been covering for a colleague, uh, editing the Daily Chart blog, which is interesting as someone who professes to be a numerate, but it's uh, we've not had any clangers so far. And then my uh, profile of the um, art detective came out this week, as did a interview that I did with the barber who looks after most of the England team. So yeah, lots going on. How about you? Uh, very busy. Um, I have been 
well, this is a joint thing, I suppose, but enjoying the new microphones we have for Always Take Notes, um, which hopefully will provide an uh, increase in audio quality. Uh, I also had a, there was a big review of my book in the LRB this week, which I was really pleased about. So they ran 4,000 words all about it, which was excellent. Um, and I have been trying to juggle various things. I'm trying to wrangle uh, access for a magazine story at the moment, and then I need to do a book extract and stuff so the, the perennial kind of freelancer time management issue but it but it's been it's been going okay i came back from my holiday and i feel invigorated anyway this has been always take notes hosted by me simon Aikham. and me rachel lloyd our producer and social media editor is artemis irvin our graphic design is by james edgar and our score is by jess danheiser if you'd like to follow us on social media you can find us on twitter at take notes always on instagram and facebook at always take notes if you'd like to support us on Patreon or get in touch with us via our website, please do. Many thanks. Goodbye.